in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and, he, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then I was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to look at five elements of today's reading uh, with regard to what Paul uses as the closing of the book of Corinth, uh, the, the epistle to, to Corinth. This is actually the second epistle that he had sent to them. He, he references a previous letter, but we don't have that letter. Um, it was lost to history. It was obviously not included in the canon, and so it's not considered scripture. Uh, but this letter was an, an important tool that Paul was using in forming this group of Christians, this group of Christians at the city in called Corinth. And I want to explain that these people were not simply Christians, uh, and they weren't Christians who were mature. They were a group of Hellenized Jews, which is to say that they were uh, Greek-minded people in, in, in Hellenism, which is just a, a name for uh, a particular time in the culture of that geographic region, Greek Hellenism. They were, they were Jewish in that they had converted over to Judaism as being true. And this happens all throughout the Old Testament. However, these are not Jewish people. They're not ethnically Jewish, but they're spiritually Jewish. They became, uh, they became observers of the law. And then there was another group of people in this church who were Greeks. They were Greek-minded. They were uh, just simply pagan, pagans or uh, worshipers of the various Greek gods at the time. Uh, and in this city, there was these two elements. And the church is made up of these types of people, both people who know God before they hear the message of, of the gospel, people who are familiar with God, they know some true things about God, and then people who do not know anything about God. And so for both the people who are mature or growing and the people who are brand new, this element of the gospel was the only thing that controlled Paul's, uh, Paul's speech. Paul did not move on past the gospel. And in fact, this is uh, important to understand because it tells us about the scope of the gospel. The gospel is not simply that Christ died for your sins so that you can go to heaven instead of going to hell. That is such a small view of the gospel, and it also is focused mostly on the wrong thing. Uh, so, 
With, when I say the centrality of the gospel, I really mean the centrality of what Christ has done and how that applies to us. It does not begin with us. So I want to look at five elements of this reading, of this passage, that are, in my mind, the most important here. Uh, first is the, prime, uh, the primary focus of the gospel being Christ Jesus and his work on the cross in his death and then his work in the resurrection as he came up out of the tomb. That is the center point and the beginning of the gospel. And I want to emphasize that the gospel does not begin with us, it begins with Christ. Moving on from there, I want to look at the sufficiency of the scriptures for uh, our faith and our practice. I want to look at the grace of God in the gospel concerning how it is that God actually chose Paul. Paul gives a testimony of his own uh, account, how he became a Christian, and then I want to look after that, that Paul makes a demonstration how his religious effort was of no importance. That is, it is absolutely futile to trust in your good works. And then finally, I want to look at the most, what I consider to be one of the most beautiful p- parts of this reading, is that God is working for his own glory. That God is actually interested in, invested in, and is determined to bring about his own glory. And that Although you may think that sounds selfish, we're going to see how that actually is the most wonderful thing that God is concerned about his own glory. Why? Because I am not as important as God. And if God is mostly focused about me, or if the gospel was mostly about me getting saved, then that would give me great cause for concern if I was going to fail or if I was going to stumble. But it's God working in us and through us for God's own glory. And that is beautiful. And we're going to see how it's not selfish. And that really is the end of that. That's the, the focal point of or where the gospel is going is to be a praise to God. God is primarily interested in that and secondarily interested in demonstrating how that applies to us. And so beginning right at the uh, right at the start of this chapter, Paul begins to explain he he reiterates to the Corinthians that when he came, he brought the gospel. He did not br- uh, he did not bring uh, expositions and mythologies. He didn't go about uh, arguing good versus evil behavior or forms of opinion or the centrality of the family or how to have a good life. He did not do any of that, but rather he preached the gospel. All of those ways in which Christians focus on secondary aspects, uh, they belie or they they betray a false understanding of the importance of the gospel. Anytime we are more focused on the material things or what you might call the leaves of the tree, uh, even to some degree our devotional life, anytime we're focused on something other than the centrality of Christ and his work, we are demonstrating that we're actually undervaluing that work. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he was uh, writing about uh, how he's to consider thinking about his wife and loving his wife. Uh, for those of you who know a little bit about him, he didn't he didn't get married very young. In fact, he got married quite old, uh, a lot older than any single person, single young person would hope for themselves. Uh, but C.S. Lewis, in describing how he has to love his wife, emphasizes that if he puts the love of his wife above the love of God, then actually he'll love his wife even less. If he keeps the love of God and the centrality of God or the importance on God, then he'll love his wife truly and more because the love that he loves his wife with 
comes from the love of God. It's a love that's given to him, and then he turns around and loves his wife. So the point here is that we need to focus on the gospel in our life and every issue of life which we see wrong, everything that we wish to amend, every uh, bad habit, every persistent sin is a failure at one point or another in our hearts, in our minds, to be satisfied with the work of Jesus Christ. And every progress that is made in the Christian life is made by believing and pressing out the gospel. That is, Christ died. So at the beginning of the gospel, we do not start with our sins. This is probably the greatest problem with the presentation of the gospel in the American church. We begin with, you are a sinner. And that distracts from the centrality of Jesus Christ. We should instead begin with Christ's work. And then from there, after mentioning that, after focusing on that for a time, describe why and how that uh, is, is important. The reason why is it because it speaks to the sovereignty of God and God's choice beforehand. So never get tired of being reminded the gospel. You never mature past the point of needing to hear the gospel over and over again. If you think that after hearing the gospel, now you need to search the scriptures for some other things about life, you're totally missing the point. Because the gospel is the message by which we are saved, the message by which we stand fast, and the message by which we are sanctified. It is primarily the Holy Spirit recommunicating the value that God had for you in exchanging his son and the depth of your sin that perform maturity in your spirit. And in fact, the Holy Spirit using the scriptures to re-demonstrate the gospel is the way by which you make progress in the Christian faith. So he reminds them, and then he describes that this is the gospel by which they are being saved. So salvation here, in the, especially in the Reformed world, we often think of salvation as this one kind of moment in time. Like um, last night, I, uh, I probably shouldn't confess this, but last night I, I stayed up till two because I, I was... Uh, you know, I was working and, and doing stuff, but I, I was just very curious if you have an iPhone, uh, in the new iOS, they have a clock on the outside as the icon. And I just wanted to see if the, you know, the icon itself is actually a moving animation. And yes, indeed, at two in the morning, it did move back from two to one. And uh, I just, I was really curious, but, but uh, the, the, po the point is, um, we think, we often think in the Christian world, we think that salvation is this moment in time. And after that moment in time, we're then saved and everything's peachy and we can go on and focus on career or family or, or what have you. But the New Testament over and over again says the gospel by which you are being saved. Salvation is for sure, a, a, there is a time in which you are born again. There is a time when you pass out of death into life. But at the same time, do not, uh, do not misunderstand the continuing aspect of the gospel's effectiveness to not only perform salvation, but to bring about maturity. The gospel is the way that they are being sanctified. And so Paul says that this was his primary message. It wasn't how seven steps to have a better marriage. It wasn't Christian business ethics. It wasn't even, you know, being a responsible young man or young woman. It was primarily what has God done. And focusing on what God has done alleviates all other problems. 
A.W. Tozer says in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, in the first few chapters, he says that a thousand or 10,000 lesser issues are solved when a person comes to a greater knowledge of God and and his holiness. And this is why the gospel is so important, because it begins with Christ. It does not begin with you. So, We err when we look for something outside the gospel to help us maintain faith or develop character. It's an absolute error. It's not just a a kind of a wishy-washy thing or you can say, well, it'd be better if I was more focused on the gospel. It is a failure to understand who Christ is and what he's done. So Paul begins with the gospel, but the gospel doesn't begin with you. It begins with Christ. The gospel is good news for man, but it's not the good news for man uh, that God has really been so concerned about the issues at, at which uh, men have been plagued with, that is, ongoing and indwelling sin. It rather begins with a sovereign foreknowledge and foretelling of God. And we're going to see that once we get into the portion concerning the scriptures. Uh, God sovereignly acted through Christ to perform an atonement. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died. Let's just stop right there. He doesn't say that men went away in the garden, that at the time Adam and Eve sinned and transgressed. Rather, Paul emphasizes that Christ died. And then we begin to see another aspect show up on the scene for our sins. Christ's death for your sins begins with God's knowledge of and plan, original plan, to remedy that future fact. It begins with God and it ends with God, as we'll see. Christ's death is not just a remedy for your sins. It's the only remedy. Let me emphasize that again. Christ's death for your sins is not a remedy. It is the only remedy. Because Christ dies for our sins, Paul says, that that is what caused it to be the first importance. There's nothing else that needs to be discussed concerning sin if Christ has died. Not only does it say what, how important our uh, salvation was and how sufficient Christ's death was, but it also tells us the depth of which God loved us. It simultaneously does two amazing things that are a mystery of the gospel. It's a mystery of the Christian faith. When we see Christ die, we simultaneously see how much God loved us, but at the same time, we see the depth of our need. Sin is magnified as utterly sinful, and God is demonstrated as utterly loving and covenantally faithful because of what Christ does on the cross. And beholding Christ on the cross simultaneously humbles us and yet causes us to be filled with exceeding joy because God loved us in Christ. That is why we have any self-worth. I want to say that if you as a believer today are, are walking and you think you're, you're something of yourself and you're, you're getting really mature, you don't know the right way. You should have a self-worth based on God's sovereign choice, not on your maturity. You should not feel good about yourself when you're making progress in the Christian faith, but rather that Christ even chose you at all. That should be the basis for all of your perspective. If there were any other way that God would have dealt with sin, he would have done it instead of giving up his son. Consider this, fathers among us, especially young fathers who have small children, uh, maybe once your kids are rebellious, it becomes a little more tolerable of a proposition, but consider giving anything that you have instead of giving up the death of your child. 
anything. I mean, trade your house instead of, imagine a scenario by which you have to purchase something or there's, you know, a threat against your life or something like this. And of course, this is an analogy. Uh, God did not have someone holding up a divine gun to his head, so to speak. But consider a scenario in which you are asked to make the greatest sacrifice. What would you trade for your son or your daughter? You would trade everything. And God would have dealt with sins in another way. And so this is how it shows us both God's sovereign love, sovereign choice, and also the depth of sin. This is what it took. It took the death of a perfect lamb that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not only did he die, though, he also was raised. Christ's death and resurrection should not be seen as if it was a plan B. When it says that Christ died, when Paul begins with Christ in the gospel, he's saying that God knew, God foreordained, and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the eternal plan of redemption, as the New Testament speaks of it, is is called the eternal plan because God understood and made a way before the need uh, was, was, was there. God absolutely begins with Christ in the gospel, not with our sin. It shows us our need, but it also shows us God's love. And finally, and again, it shows us that all glory is headed to God's praise. That's where we're going to end in this uh, look at these five elements. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, for I deliver to you as, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Christ's death and resurrection is not a plan B, but rather it was prophesied and foreknown and foretold. God, who loves to tell his uh, children, his, his redeemed ones, his plans, had told over and over again what Christ was going to do. Look closely at this portion here, in accordance with the scriptures. This is what we say in the Nicene Creed, uh, week by week, we, we said the Apostles' Creed today, but week by week when we say the Nicene Creed, we say that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. And we get that phrase right here. When we say in accordance with the scriptures, we understand that Paul was not talking about the Old Testament. He was talking about, or sorry, not talking about the New Testament. He was talking about the Old Testament. When Paul is writing this letter, the New Testament had not been formally bound together and, uh, d- uh, you know, agreed upon. The formation of the New Testament takes place in 325 uh, AD. Paul is writing sometime around 60, maybe, maybe a little earlier, 58. Paul is writing a letter, and he references the writings, the scriptures, and is talking about the Old Testament. God not only foreknew, but foreordained and foretold, that is, told before it came about to the prophets over and over again. Paul is not asserting the authority of the New Testament writers. When, when he says according to the scriptures, he's not saying although it, it is, it's probably the most easy to hear it this way, but he's not saying it at all. He's not saying that Christ died just like we just told you in the Gospels. You know, if you're flipping through the New Testament, by the time you get to Corinth, you've passed Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, etc., etc. Uh, he's not saying that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures that we just told you in the Gospels. He's saying that Christ died in accordance with the prophecies made beforehand. Christ's death was foreknown by God, it was his original plan, and he told his people about it. God's covenant faithfulness in Christ's death is seen 
as his faithfulness to the patriarchs. Who, who do I mean by the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When, when God is cursing the ground and bringing the curse at the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15, it's some call, sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, which is just a fancy word for saying the prototype of the gospel, uh, God says that Christ will have enmity with the serpent and that the serpent will bruise him on the heel, but he will strike him on the head. God knew that the bruising of the heel would be the death of Christ. And yet the resurrection, we see that that was only a bruise. Yes, Christ fully died, but surely that death was not victorious. Rather, Christ's resurrection shows that he has trampled the serpent. I don't know if this is prophetic, but yesterday when we were working outside, I uh, found a snake, and I removed a little tiny. It was beautiful. Um, if you don't like snakes, I mean, I didn't pet it. Uh, I, I picked it up. I picked it up with a stick because I'm not silly. Um, it wasn't poisonous. We only have two poisonous snakes in Ohio. It was just a little gardener snake, but I uh, removed it from the church property. I feel like that has some sort of significance. <laughs> so, if this is true, if the, if Christ really will. Uh, crush the serpent on his head. If it's true, and if the scriptures tell of Christ, then we must rethink the value that we place on the scriptures. October 31st is, of course, Halloween, but it's also considered by those in the Protestant church to be Reformation Day, for it's the day that Martin Luther put 95 propositions on a wall of a church and thus sparked uh, a movement which would then um, you know, become the Reformation. Of course, Luther was not trying to leave the church at the time, but uh, just as October 31st might be a great day to celebrate something like that, there are other days that are supremely important, uh, like July 8th, the day that uh, John Wycliffe was killed. Uh, and if you don't know what John Wycliffe was killed for, he was killed for maintaining that the people should have a copy of the scriptures. Uh, other men named John. John Huss was also a person who was killed for the idea that you should be able to read the Bible. And at this, you know, not only do we celebrate the, the revival of the gospel and the clarity of the gospel in the church, but also the word of God itself and the scriptures, the prophecies, which over and over again are emphasizing Christ's death and resurrection, the sufficiency of his work. We should rethink how much we value the scriptures because of this, that God foreknew, foretold, and is seeking to glorify Jesus Christ's death and his resurrection. So after describing some historic facts of the post-resurrection appearances, Paul then begins to give a little mini-testimony of how he became an apostle. Um, we're going to skip over a few verses going, verse, uh, going to verse 8. Um, Paul is giving his testimony not because his testimony is supremely important, but in fact, the reason, as Paul's about to say, the reason that Paul was saved, the reason that God chose Paul was to be a demonstration of God's supreme faithfulness and mercy. We're going to look at who Paul is. Most of us, when we think of Paul, we think of Paul as this person who was really used by God. 
but some of us are maybe a little more unfamiliar with where he came from, what he was doing when he was chosen by Christ. Verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is speaking of when Paul is on the way to, uh, I believe it's Samaria, He's going with letters to arrest people in the churches. And these are letters that were given to him. They were uh, certificates of authority that were given to him by the religious leaders of the day. And they were, uh, they were letters which were seeking to arrest people that they believed to be blasphemers. That is, these Jews who began following Christ, these people who were in the church, Paul saw it as his job to maintain the zeal for right worship of Yahweh by going and arresting Christians and putting them in jail. And this is when Paul is visited by Christ. And this is going to feed into the next two ideas about the futility of looking at our works and and looking at uh, anything other than Christ's choosing. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul wasn't just born at the wrong time. Uh, He was born in such a time as he was a little bit older than the rest of the apostles, And he also was not even part of Christ's original group of followers, yet he calls himself an apostle. Now, I don't think that Paul understands, you know, the 12 apostles in some classification. I think what he's talking about is the apostles who are currently functioning. That is, he's an apostle who is functioning, and he was born later than the rest of them. He was born in in such a time as to not see Christ before he left in the ascension. And so Paul is not only born at the wrong time, but he's also the wrong person. You know, we have hero stories about various, you know, myths. You can think of Spider-Man, for example. He was in the wrong place, but he was the right person. You know, he gets bit by this spider and he's transformed into this good guy. Um, Not only was Paul the wrong guy, but he was also in the wrong time. He is not supposed to be the hero. If you read the book of Acts, it's an anti-hero story. It's a, it's a demonstration that only Christ is able to be for us a superhero, if you will, an actual hero in which we can trust. Paul and all of the other apostles over and over again, we see their flaws, we see their failures, and here Paul is not hiding them at all. In fact, he re-emphasizes them so that the Corinthians would get an understanding of what God's doing. God's bringing about his own glory, and glory belongs to God alone, not to men. And so Paul highlights his flaws, re-emphasizes his sins, and does not at all diminish them. Paul explains that he was persecuting the church and that that should have disqualified him from being an apostle. Now, the qualifications for an apostle are, or at least an elder, are given in other places, but essentially an apostle is one that was invested with authority by Christ to build his church. And this is what Paul is getting at. He was not worthy in the least. Christ so identifies with his people in the book of Acts that when he appears to Paul, he says to Paul, well, at this time it's uh, Saul, but Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ is not detached from his body. You and I, you know, when we understand ourselves as the church, we often think, oh, well, the church is weak, the church is, you know, being persecuted in this culture. But Christ doesn't detach himself from his people. He identifies with his people, such that when Paul is arresting Christians, Christ comes and says, why are you persecuting me? 
And so Paul is not just persecuting some other human beings. He's trying to kill God again, if he could. And in the very chapter in Acts 8, or, uh, sorry, not Acts 8, later in Acts, when, when Paul is converted, uh, Acts 9, when Paul is converted, it actually says at the very beginning of the chapter, while Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. You know, that's just like an amazing setting for this conversion. Paul did not earn his faith. He did not earn his righteousness. We see a picture of the power of God's grace in Paul's conversion. Now, it would be enough in our reading of the book of Acts, should God decide, okay, well, I'm just going to put an end to Paul's dysfunction. I'm just going to make Paul into this kind of normal, quiet Christian who's just a nice guy, and he'll stop arresting people and and uh, stoning Stephen and, you know, in Acts uh, 6, uh, God does not just bestow uh, mercy on Saul, who Saul is his Hebrew name, Paul is his Greek name. Um, Not only does God bestow mercy, but he also transforms. He takes someone who was against the church and recreates him after the image of Christ to be the greatest asset, arguably the greatest asset of all time for the church. Certainly the greatest apostle at this time in terms of the churches which he planted and how long they existed, and also the epistles and the doctrine which he uh, codified in Scripture. So Paul is not just going from a bad guy to a neutral guy. He's not a quiet Christian who's been given just a, you know, a normal house and the various concerns of life. He is radically invested with grace and power uh, by God himself, not according to what Saul has done. Paul did not seek out Christ at all. And this is how you're saved. This is how I'm saved. We do not seek out Christ. Christ comes and hunts us down. Christ's call to faith and obedience that he gave to Paul was not a result of Paul keeping the law. And I use quotes, scare quotes, to describe keeping because Paul, although he says he kept the law, had at this time had nothing to do with the intention and spirit of God's law. Not at all. In fact, Christ's choosing of him is done in spite of or despite his sins and failures. Paul says that in Philippians 3, he says that he was one who was a thorough keeper of the law, and it says in Scripture, which I believe to be infallible without any error, that Paul kept the law blamelessly. Now, as to the external keeping of the law, yes, Paul did keep it blameless, but he was not keeping it in accordance with truth. God over and over again through Christ, shows that his law is much more important than the externalities. You can think back to the Sermon on the Mount when Christ is talking about sins that people commit. He says, concerning lust, he says, or, or adultery, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that he who even looks on a woman with lust for her in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And so, Christ is showing that the the true understanding of the law goes to the heart. Yes, Paul kept the law blamelessly externally, but in persecuting the Christians, he wasn't loving his neighbor, was he? (laughs) No. (laughs) He was doing what he thought by his natural eyes, by his natural understanding of God's word. He thought he was being righteous, but actually it was extreme evil. 
He was participating in the killing of Christians, the arresting of Christians, in the very same sin that the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the religious leaders of Israel and Rome was guilty of, that is namely trying to kill God. When, when Christ comes and says, why are you persecuting me? He's saying, you're committing the very same trespass that they were committing when they crucified me. This is how evil Saul actually was. And yet when, when Christ shows up and reveals himself to Saul, he just simply says, go into the city and wait for a while and you'll be told what to do. <laughs> what a great call of the gospel. We kind of like try to beg and plead people to come to altars and make a decision for Christ. Christ shows up and says, Paul, you're going to do what I tell you. <laughs> In the book of Acts, actually, it's important to understand that, the, that the, the gospel is the announcement that Christ is Lord, that Christ has made a way for you, and you must bow the knee. That is the message. And in fact, in the book of Acts, the, the apostles say that they've been given a commission to bring about the obedience of faith. And in, in Acts 17, when they show up uh, at Ephesus, uh, they say that God has commanded all people everywhere to repent. Commanded to repent. All people. Everywhere. All times. All, all seasons, all cultures, all people everywhere are commanded to repent. It is not simply an appeal to try Christ. It's not an appeal to, uh, in the words of Dr. Phil, examine how things are working out for you. It's, in a, it's a command and an, and an announcement that God has already done something about the fact that you are a warrior against him, that in your sin, you're constantly rebelling against him. Uh, I need to memorize more references, but it's clear that the New Testament epistles hold this over and over again. It says that uh, at the right time, while we were still at enmity with God, Christ died for us. While we were still at enmity, that's what Acts 9 was saying, Paul, while still breathing out murderous threats against the church, and then he is redeemed in that same chapter. It is not the fact that you acquire any sort of merit or any sort of uh, wooing of God's heart so that you would be saved. It is God's gracious and sovereign choice alone, and it is for the glory of Christ. Paul's record was perfect, but God looks at the heart. And if Paul should have actually held up his righteous deeds before God in this moment, he would have been utterly ashamed, utterly lacking, because they would not have survived at all. Jonathan Edwards, when he's describing the sufficiency of our works, describes them and, and God's perspective as a, a tiny spider's web hoping to stop a giant boulder rolling down a hill. You've all seen how easily spider's webs fall apart. You can get rid of them with a broom or a finger. And yet here we see that our works before Christ's zeal and Christ's standard of judgment are nothing at all. They are like a vapor, like a mist fading away. And so Paul did not Paul was not chosen because of his keeping of the law. He was not chosen for faith, let even alone his apostleship, because of his righteousness, but rather God's sovereign choice alone. The reason that God chose Paul was to demonstrate for all time the sufficiency of the power of the gospel. If God can, by his grace, by his choice, take someone who was a murderer, who hated the church, who wished for the church to be done away with and destroyed, and turn him into a great apostle who will literally die for the believers. That for all time should give you confidence and hope. If you think at all that your sins are, have put you too far away from, 
from God. Look at what happens to Paul. Paul goes from being a murderer to an apostle, someone who hates the church to the greatest, uh, apart from Christ and and the prophets, one of the greatest foundational stones of the life of the church. So it's God's grace. It's not our merit. It's not anything that we uh, are worthy to receive, but rather his choice. And it's also not according to our works. The good news that Paul says, or the gospel, is that Christ's death and resurrection are the final word considering what needs to be done about your sins. That's it. And in fact, you should regularly have in your life, in your spiritual walk uh, as a Christian, you should regularly have moments when confessing your sins before God, you are you feel you not only feel bad about them because of godly conviction, but also you ask God to forgive you. And then in that very same moment, God, by the Holy Spirit, will direct your eyes to the cross. That should regularly happen as a Christian, as a believer, because that's all that needs to be done. If you are relating to God in such a way as you think you need to clean up for yourself after sinning, then you have not believed the gospel. Or you maybe you have believed the gospel in an element, but you're trying to turn over to your works. Like Galatians says, having been begun by the Spirit, are you now seeking to be sanctified by the works of the flesh? No, not at all. The only thing is Christ on the cross. That is what the gospel says. Christ dies for our sins, period, end of story, move on to the next idea. I need not and indeed cannot aid to the work of Christ. And that is so important as a believer that you begin to fully understand that it was God's gracious action in Christ. It was God's gracious choosing of me in Christ. And he has given me faith to believe that he will be true, even if any men should be a liar. So, Looking at our works is absolutely futile. But not only did God work when he was doing something in the cross, Paul begins to demonstrate that God is still at work. Even though the cross was final, even though Christ on the cross says it is finished, he then continues to work. And the work that he continues to do is not because there's something lacking in Christ, but rather he, we, he wishes to spread the message of what has happened to the whole world. God is now at work in his servants, and this, as I said earlier, is the most amazing aspect of this passage in my mind. Of course, knowing that it all begins with the cross, but where this is ending or where this is headed to is the glory of God working for himself. Verse 10, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, this is, a, again, a divine mystery that has to be apprehended by. It has to be taken hold of by faith. But what Paul is saying when he is being shipwrecked, when he is being whipped, when he is being flogged, when he is being left for dead, when he gets bit by a serpent that they you know, think will kill him, all of these things that happen to Paul, Paul is saying, I worked harder than any of the other apostles, but it was not I, but the grace of God in me. What you have to see is the implication is that whenever you do anything good, anything that God created you to do, according to Ephesians uh, 2.10, that God saved us and chose us not by our good works, but in order to do good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should live in that way. Whenever we do these good works, Paul is saying that it is not our effort 
but that it is God at work in us, doing something. That underneath our motivations, if there be any goodness in the thing that we're doing, it actually is coming from God. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, but it was not I, for the grace of God was working in me. And God is seeking to glorify Christ by causing Paul to spread the news of the gospel to all of this geographic region. He's invested Paul with authority. He's invested Paul with understanding. He's chosen him. He's transformed him. And now is demonstrating for you, for me, that when we work, we ought to work understanding that it's only by God's grace. It's only by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we are able to do these things. Paul says that the grace of God was working in me, and it proved to not be in vain. It wasn't just something that God thought about doing, but God made sure. This is where it gives us great confidence that God is working for his own glory. God is seeking to glorify Christ's work on the cross, and he does it through Paul by God's power. Paul had outdone all these other apostles because Christ says, he who is forgiven much loves much. And Paul is able to, be, to do this because of God's power, not his. Even if Paul wanted to boast in his works at this point, he couldn't do it because he says it didn't come from me. It rather came from God. Earlier, if Paul should have trusted in his religious law keeping, it would have been pointless because it wasn't good enough. It was full of mixture. It was full of evil. He actually, as Christ says, he actually hated Christ. He hated God. And so now, after having been justified, he can't even begin to look at his works after being saved because it's God's work. And because it's God's energy, then God gets the credit. Think about it like this. If you had anything to do with your salvation at all, then some of the credit should go to you, right? I mean, that's the way that the world works. Anyone who's involved in an effort gets some of the credit, some of the benefit. But that is not the case. God is doing something in causing faith to come alive in you so that Christ will be glorified. Paul says this, and this is a great uh, foundation for a great bedrock layer of wonderful, uh, steadfast sand and rock and concrete. This is immovable because God is doing something and it's not me. I'm not resting on my work to perform God's sanctification in my life and the ministry by which, you know, I'm supposed to live. The the good works, Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in. I'm not resting in my work to bring about transformation in my life because God is interested in it. And if God's in charge of it, then I need not worry. God works for his own glory to save and redeem a people such that they would be an eternal witness for his praise. Ephesians 1 says that the reason that the church was formed was that they would be an eternal praise to God's glory. The reason the gospel has taken place is that God wishes to be glorified so that men would see and behold him. And it's not a selfishness. I want to help explain this because it, it sounds it would sound selfish if it was in man's terms. If I said that John Weiss is working for his own glory, you would be really scared. You should leave. Um, if I declared, you know, I'm really in, I really am interested in this project to get the credit, then please leave. But, the, but it's not divine selfishness. Why? Because God is a God of love, and the most loving thing that he can do 
for his creatures is to give them the gift of himself. God is supremely valuable and supremely beautiful. And the most loving thing to do is to seek the other's good. And the greatest good that others can receive is the beauty of beholding God. And we see no clearer aspect of the Father's heart and love than what Christ does on the cross in his death, in going to the utmost action of love. Tim Keller has a wonderful quote that I I love. It's been one of the most transformative things in how I approach understanding who God is and how he's loved me in Christ, that whenever you love someone, it always requires you to take the hit. Think about it for a second. You know, if you let's say uh, in the condition of of someone, you know, let's uh, a homeless person, you want to give a meal, you want to give, uh, you know, water, a drink to, or or a place to stay. You have to spend yourself on that person. If you're in a squabble with a sibling or a parent or a child or a spouse, it requires you to forgive them. It requires a hit to your pride. You have to lay down your right to get revenge, right? It requires you to take the hit. And to not forgive them is to not love them. You can work this out in a thousand ways. But the point is that whenever God loves us, it requires that Christ takes the hit. And that's what he did for us on the cross. God's sovereignty can be a frightening proposition when it's examined outside of this truth. Many people, when they begin to walk as believers, they hear these phrases, let go and let God, you know, just, oh, whatever. Or another one that I somewhat dislike is uh, Jesus take the wheel. Now that's a tongue in cheek one to say that, um, yes, we need to be at work in bringing about maturity by his word, by his grace. Of course, we should be concerned with the things that we've been invested with. We should be good stewards. Of course, all that's true. Uh, but our understanding of the Christian walk is not just, oh, cum se, cum sa, whatever will be, will be. You know, It's not just that. Because God is sovereign, we can just do whatever we'd like. No, that's not it at all. God is sovereign, and he's radically invested in bringing about his goodness and his glory to be shown on the earth. And because of that, that shows us that his sovereignty is the greatest thing that we can have. Some of us, when we hear God's sovereign, we, we then immediately think, well, he's going to give me cancer so that I'll learn to be a disciplined person or I'll, you know, God's going to cause something bad to teach me character. That's not the way that you were saved. God didn't let you take the hit. Christ takes the hit. And that's not the way that you're matured. Sure, God can redeem some of those. But when you think of God's sovereignty and you instantly revert to ideas, well, you know, bad stuff is bound to happen because God's sovereign and he wants to teach me a lesson, that is not the God of the gospel. That is a God of a different sort of religious making. God is radically invested in you seeing his glory and his sovereign control is not something to be feared, but actually is the end to all of your fears. All of your fears can be set aside because we understand God is in control and there will be nothing that is not filtered through his desire for people to know about him. And if that's the case, taken together, all things work together for the good of God, for the good of of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's important to not lose that word together. It's not just everything that happens in your life will be okay. But when seen in the context of your entire life, when seen under the filter of God's sovereignty, everything works together for the good. Yes, Joseph, when he goes into prison in the book of Genesis, that was bad. 
But when he comes out of the prison, he's, he's gifted by God to lead the people of Egypt in storing up food such that thousands of people are spared because they don't die in a famine that he sees and, and uh, prepares for. Taken together, Joseph's story is a demonstration of God's goodness. So when you look at things in your life and you look at the sovereignty of God, don't consider that something God's about to do something bad because he's sovereign. He wishes to have a demonstration of his glory in your life through the exaltation of Christ on the cross. The Christian life is a life that's lived in faith in Christ such that anything good that you experience, anything that you experience or that you do, is done by God's power. And because it's done by God's power, God deserves the credit and the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul's wonderful recording of how the gospel came to the Corinthians. We ask, Lord, that it would come here too. God, we ask that you would do a miracle, that you would cause those of us who have not yet begun to look to Christ to have faith and confidence that you actually are wishing to be reconciled to your uh, creation. Lord, we pray that you would remove all uh, wrong understanding about you that, that sees you as a harsh God who is sovereignly in control and about ready to smash us. Lord, we pray that you would allow us to see your kind love in allowing Christ to take the hit for us. We pray, Lord, that you would do this not through our effort, not through even my preaching today, but rather through your word, and that it would be by your Holy Spirit that you would be glorified. Lord, we pray that you would become so great in our eyes that all of our looking to ourself, whether it is our effort or our track record or how we did this week, whether we sinned a lot or sinned a little, that all of those things would be so diminished so as to fall away because we are focused on Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this vision. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.